uh, pastoral care. Our shepherding pastor, David Shindell, is going to lead us and teach us this morning. And would you welcome him? Thank you, Mo. Mo just asked me before y'all came in if I could preach a little longer this morning, just in the hopes that someone would give a little bit more so we get the building built a little faster since it's so hot. And if you know Mo, that did not happen. He did not say that. Good morning, friends. Good morning, church family. And if you're a guest here this morning, a special welcome to you. That's bold and brave of you to come and be among people that you may not know, but I trust that you will sense in a very real way both a welcome among people who care and a God who loves you very, very much. Special Sunday this morning. We're going to call it Super Sunday Special because we have some tools for you that we would like to give to you very quickly. The guys are going to come forward here. We're about a third of the way through the Gospel of Mark. That's our series. We've got another two, three years left. Uh, That was a joke too. Um, But these are little books that actually have the entire Gospel of Mark in them. The neat feature is that they're journals so that on the opposite side of the Bible text was a blank page where you would put all of your notes like I have for this morning. And confession, as I was preaching through this this morning, I've never done this before. I wrote all my notes right here, and I actually got up for service and looked, and I could not read them. They're so small. (laughs) Uh, That's not a joke. And I panicked. I was all over the place first service. So I tried to blow them up a little bit. (laughs) My vision is not going well. So here's the super special. Go to Amazon. They're six bucks today and today only. Here, they're three bucks. (laughs) They're three bucks. Honor system, you do not, please do not try to get out cash right now. Write a check, take your credit card. If you would like one of these, and if you have no money, I know the people of Conduit. There'll be someone that'll spot you, will pay extra, and if not, I'll pay for it. We would love for everyone that would like one. Um, We've got about 60 of these left, I think. So right now, guys, just go through the aisles, raise your hand, and at the same time, Super Sunday special, free twisty pencil to be able to take notes with. So grab your pencil. If you would like one of these, teens, uh, whoever, if you'd like to take one to give to someone, we will be in Mark for the next few months, and we've still got some road to travel. Take notes, write your own personal thoughts, draw pictures, whatever you would like to do. Just raise your hand. The guys will get them to you. And while they're doing that, if you already have a copy of God's Word on your phone or in a Bible, turn to Mark 6. We're going to complete Mark chapter 6 today. I hope this works. It was very humbling. Hands are still raised. You can take that little flyleaf thing off, and if you want to turn to page... <laughs> 40? 40. This really is bad. I thought it'd be a great idea to have all my little notes in this little book and someone will read them someday. Before we pray, I have a title for the sermon. It's a long one. Here's the first part and then I'll give you the second part. First part, is what to do with a guy who walks on water. Second part, contemplating the distinction 
and eternal ramifications between astonishment and faith. Between astonishment and faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving your revelation of truth to us through your spirit in a book that we cherish called the Bible. Would you please bless the power of your word? Would you help me and help my brothers and sisters, our friends, to be able to hear, not from me this morning, but from you? Bless your word. In Jesus' name, this wonderful name, amen. We're going to jump right in, and actually the text I'm going to focus on, which is this text about a guy walking on water, is verses 45 through 52, but there's another small paragraph right at the end of that that finishes out chapter 6, and we're going to start with that. Not going to really focus on that at all because you're going to notice it's very similar in content and activity as to what Mo preached on three weeks ago. If you did not hear that sermon You need to go back and reference it. It was well done, connected it to the Old Testament significance uh, for those miracles that took place. But let's just read it to finish out Mark 6 in this text. The text says, when they had crossed over, that's Jesus and the disciples, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch, and here's the part, even the fringe of his garment, those tassels that have been prophesied in the Old Testament that had healing power. And the text finishes and says, and as many as touched it were made well. The text before this, though, is brand new. It's new content for Mark and for us. So let's read through the text. And as you do, there really are two main sections or points to the text today, to the sermon. And that is this. You're going to be looking as we read through this story for the main event. Identify the main event. And then subsequently look for the main message. And here's a hint. They're not the same. The main event is not the main message, which is interesting. Look for both. Here we go. Are you ready? I'm going to try to read from this. Verse 40. What number is that? Five. Here we go. It really is. It's hard. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Remember what's just taken place? Feeding of the 5,000. Jay spoke last week on that text. And after he had taken leave of them, the people there, the crowd, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Just as a note of reference, Sea of Galilee. We call it a sea, but when I first saw it, it didn't look like what I thought a sea would be. Lake Tahoe, if you can think of that, fits over top of the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is only two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. It's 13 miles long, seven miles wide. 
It's interesting, the text says in verse 47 that when evening came, that's a reference to a specific margin of time. In the Roman culture, which the Jews also adopted, there were four watches, a military expression for a sentinel or a guard to be posted to keep a watch, to keep look. And those were from 6 to 9 was the first watch to 9 p.m. Second watch, also called evening, which would give you a reference of time step here, from 9 to midnight, midnight to 3, and 3 to 6 a.m. would be the last or the fourth watch. So when Mark says, when evening came, we're now talking about after all those people were dismissed by Jesus who had been eating the fish burgers that Jesus made and multiplied. They got into the boat, and it's now between 9 and midnight. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Don't have time here, but the geological implications here are fascinating. Um, Sea of Galilee sits below sea level, the mountains around it, and the tunnels that form these wind, if you will, ravines that form these wind tunnels that can come up and sweep up. There have been records um, of 14 and 15 foot waves on this little lake because of the wind. That's what the disciples are facing. And about the fourth watch of the night, now what time is it? Between 3 and 6 a.m. They've been out there a while, rowing. In fact, John tells us in his gospel parallel account that they had made it out and actually been pushed out three to four miles in the middle of the lake, and they've been rowing now for some six, seven-plus hours. During this time of night, he, Jesus, came to them. So far, so good. Walking. So far, so good on the sea. Whoa. He meant to pass by them. But when he saw him, or when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a phantasma is the Greek word, where we get our word phantom. Literally, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried. The word for cried is not wah. It's scream, guttural, throat, burst, all 12 disciples screaming in a boat. <laughs> For they all saw him and were terrified. That just means terrified. <laughs> but immediately he spoke to them. Jesus said to them while he's walking, standing now maybe on water, he says, take heart. <laughs> it is I. Don't be afraid. Yeah, right. And he got into the boat with them. Another miracle, the wind stopped, ceased immediately. Another gospel parallel account says that immediately when Jesus got into the boat, not only did the wind stop, but they actually were immediately at the shore, at the dock. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's God's word through the author, Mark. Question. What was the main event? What's the big storyline? What's the headline event in this story? What is it? A guy walks on water. That's big. Never happened before. Not sure it's happened too much since. Big story. Question, with this big event, how did it impact and affect Jesus' disciples, the twelve? It's interesting if you think back, they're coming just 12 hours or so earlier from this hillside. We don't know exactly where. There's a traditional site where this took place. We're not for sure if that's exactly where it was. But after they were there with the feeding of the 5,000, you have to contemplate in their minds, along with the rest of the crowd, what they were thinking. Jesus literally 
took stuff and made more stuff out of stuff. To the extent, and Jay referenced this last week, the numbers potentially, the, the scripture just says 5,000 men. That doesn't include, include women and children. Potentially, uh, historians tell us that it could be between 20 and 25,000 people. Just to put that into perspective, if you were to take this room right here, we've got about 150, 175 people in here right now. Imagine this setting right now, all of us, and now put 150 more buildings down the road with as many people that are in here right now. 150 of you. And Jesus fed all of them, and there were 12 baskets full of food left over. And everybody thought, wow, that's amazing. That's cool. Jesus, you're the man. High five. Jesus attracted crowds everywhere he went. This was amazing. In fact, we'll look at a little bit later. The disciples, I think, were caught up in the hysteria and the hype. They're, they're pretty jazzed. They're pretty excited. They're amazed with Jesus until he tells them to get into the boat. If I'm a disciple up, up to this point, I'm probably not going to want to get in the boat if Jesus isn't in the boat or if he's sleeping in the boat. I'm not going to want to be in that boat. But the text says that Jesus made them to get into the boat. So picture that. It's nighttime. Obviously, the storm probably hasn't arisen yet. They get out in the middle of the lake. The storm kicks up, and all of a sudden, I can imagine that they're ticked. They're not happy. They've been rowing against a headwind. They're being carried all around. And the Greek text gives the idea that the winds were not only beating against them as individuals, but the boat was beginning to be distressed. So both rowers and the boat are distressed painfully so. They're scared already. Are they going to drown? They're exhausted. They're hurt. And they're ticked. All of a the sudden, they see a phantom. And he's walking on water. They hear a familiar voice. And they find out that it's Jesus. They're terrified, the scripture says. But then it goes on to say that as soon as Jesus said, take heart, don't be afraid, it's me, he gets into the boat, the Bible concludes, look at it again there, where it says, and they were utterly, what's the next word? Astounded, astonished. You could work, perhaps use the word again, amazed. The original word here in the Greek, though, it's interesting. It actually references layered titles. Titles or superlatives stacked up on top of each other. So go back 12 hours earlier. Fish burger served from two fish, five loaves. Amazing, right? We could use that word. Amazing. Wow. Jaw-dropping. Cool. Jesus, you're lit. That was for the teenagers in here. Okay? Take that, but now next word, lit. Now I'm ticked. I just came up with that. That's pretty good. Lit. Ticked. Exhausted, scared, hurting, sore, and now I see a ghost, terrified. Oh, wait, it's Jesus. Don't be afraid. I am now utterly astounded. Take all of those terms, stack them up all together, and you get something like super duper tripped out. <laughs> if I was one of the disciples, I'd be tripping. David Blaine, you guys know that? I don't know him, 
Um, I've seen him a couple of times. I can follow the progression a little bit. I've seen David Blaine on TV do some card tricks that are just kind of mind-blowing. It's like, that is, that's, how'd you do that? That's really amazing. Two, last night I went on and I pulled up a YouTube video of him actually letting someone else take an ice pick and pick a spot in his hand anywhere he wanted to and literally drive the ice pick all the way through his hand so it came out the other side and then pulled it back out, not one drop of blood. That kind of wigged me out a little bit. To then where I can remember some time ago I had seen a, a show actually where David Blaine was doing some stuff and at that point it got freaky because it wasn't natural. It wasn't just, in my mind, an illusion, a trick. This, was, this, this should not be happening. I'm scared, click, off goes the TV. That's kind of the progression that's taken place up to this point with the disciples of Jesus. But here, did you see it? When I first read this, I thought, huh? I don't understand. And that's at the last verse of the text, because Mark says they were utterly astounded because, and he gives the reason why they're layered superlative titles, because they did not understand, okay, I'm good with that, about the, the loaves. The reason they're saying we're super duper tripped out, ticked, terrified, amazed, astonished, super duper tripped out, all of that was because they didn't understand about the loaves. They were confused. In vernacular, they didn't get it. And then Mark goes on to tell us why they didn't get it. Why does it say they didn't get it? Because their hearts had to do with a heart thing. Not like boom, 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 but spiritual, soul. Their hearts were hardened. In the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, if you think back into Exodus, where Moses would go before Pharaoh and say, God said, the God of Israel says, let my people go or else. And each time the response of Moses demand, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? Same exact word there with Pharaoh describing the followers of Jesus. In fact, real quick, let's do this. If you have these little journals or your Bibles, go to the very last chapter, uh, the very end of Mark. So we'll jump ahead here. If it, you've got a little journal, it's page 104. Um, it would be chapter 16, and we're going to read uh, verse 11 for a few verses. Context, Jesus has died, he has risen, and now he's showing himself alive to people, okay? So this is now months later. And it says, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Faith. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they, these are the disciples, they did not, what's the next word? Believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the 11, all 11 themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their Unbelief, and here's the words again, their hardness of heart. The word there in the Greek text has a visual connotation. Visualize something that is dull or layered with calloused skin. Hardness of heart. 
What does all that mean? I'm going to try to look at my big print so I can know what the answer is. Think about this. How is it possible that you can be super duper tripped out, amazed, astonished? And not have faith. And still have a hard heart. Here's a really important truth. Witnessing miracles, experiencing miracles firsthand, if that's you, does not always or even often lead to faith. The miracles of Jesus are not sufficient in of themselves to make you believe. Which is why the point, or what we said, the main message, we found the main event, but this is why the main point, the main message, is not to convince you that a guy walked on water. Which, by the way, if you were to go and this afternoon YouTube a bunch of preachers who preach this text, about nine out of every ten of them are going to be Look at how amazing this story is. Look how powerful God is. Just think what God can do in your life this week. All you have to do is ask. And for now two millennia, we have religious culture all over the planet that celebrates and espouses and falsely leads people to believe in a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. No, the point of the miracles of Jesus In fact, the point of all the miracles in the Gospels is not the miracles. The point of the healings is not the healings. The point of the exorcisms of demons coming out of people is not the exorcisms. In fact, the point of all of Jesus' teachings is not just how to live a better, blessed life. That's not the main message. Now, to be clear so that we don't understand, this does not mean that we somehow are minimizing both the miracles and or the power of Jesus. In fact, that's not the case. We could could actually maximize this miracle and every other miracle in the Gospels to its greatest degree, and yet it is still secondary to a greater objective or message, which is the main message, which brings us to the question, what is then the message? What's the point? From this point forward, I want to take you on what we'll say is an inductive study, which is going to just require you to look at the text a lot, because what I'm about to say, I want you to see comes from the text where it's not clear. I'll try to make that clear. Where it is clear, I'll leave it to you to have faith. What's the main message? Well, let me start with this question. As we read this text together, guy walking on water, did you notice anything? Let me help you. Specifically, did you notice anything missing? I'm going to call it a startling omission. Yes, Jesus walked on water, but do you know he's not the only guy who walked on water? Here's a second dude. In fact, if you read Matthew's account, parallel account of this same event, He goes and he tells us all about that. His name was, it is, Peter. It's not here. Which caused me to think, 
Why, why wouldn't Mark talk about that? I mean, if that, was, if that was my story, I'd be bragging all over the place. You ain't going to believe what happened to me. It's not part of the story. Think about this. We know that Mark wrote this gospel, but did you realize Mark was not one of the 12 disciples? Mark didn't witness this. He was not in the boat. In fact, Mark didn't write this until 30 to 35 years later after this event even happened. So think a little bit further with me, though, because if Mark is telling us about events that he doesn't know about, how did he find out about them to write them? And the answer is, Mark was a disciple of one of the disciples whose name is Peter. Peter, the guy who always shot his mouth off. Peter, the guy who would always have to make it about himself. Peter, the guy who was hiding in the corners of the shadows when a little girl came and said, wait a minute, aren't you that Jesus guy? And Peter, making it about himself, said, no, I don't, I don't know who Jesus is. Three times. That Peter. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that what I'm about to say is implicit. In other words, it is not clearly stated in the text. However, in other words, it's not explicit, it's implicit. But I want to venture this with you. Could it be that as Peter is recounting this eyewitness event, he was one of the guys in the boat. In fact, he walked on the water with Jesus. Could it be that the then story back then, which by the way, when we read the language, that the, the men were utterly astonished because they did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hard. Who was he talking about? Not just his brothers, but himself. He's making a personal confession there. Yeah, Jesus did all this and my heart was hard. Could it be that something had happened to Peter, the guy who was always in it for himself, where now he actually perhaps instructs Mark, I don't want people to read this story in this gospel and have in their vision anyone but Jesus. We're not going to distract from the main message, the main point, because Jesus is the point possible. I can't say for sure, but now we're going to argue some further steps. If the main point was not just to convince people that a guy walked on water, then we have to ask the question, what is the point? And I'm going to suggest to you whether the startling omission was purposeful and was, was as I said it perhaps could be or not. I'm going to suggest to you, because we're going to see it in the text, Peter is going to argue that the point is not that Jesus walked on the water, but the point is who you come to believe and place your faith in as to who he, Jesus, is. And there's two things that we see in the text that Peter says Jesus is. One, he is. And before I say this, this is so cliche today for people who are church people. But do you realize the majority of this planet does not believe this? To say Jesus of Nazareth is God is offensive to people. 
In fact, today, some people who call them Christians, they even, they start the creepy slide, the slippery slope of saying, well, he, he had significant abilities. But to say that he was God, I'm not sure I believe that. That's an indication of what? Calloused skin, layer upon layer, dullness, hardness of heart. Peter wants to make the point, though, that Jesus is God. Inductive study. Here we go. Here's how he does it. Look at verse number 48. Did anybody catch this and wonder, huh? Jesus sees him out struggling on the water, and he goes out to them, and the text says in verse 48, he meant to pass by them. Okay, so what's up with that? Is that like, okay, Jesus is now tiptoeing on the water? It's like, I got to get over there. It's a lot quicker just to walk across than here. So I just, I hope they don't see me. Darn it, they saw me. And then, so tiptoeing, does that mean he's like going up one wave and down the other? Or does it like get real level when he's tiptoeing across? Does it mean he's like sneaking up behind him? Is he a prankster? And like sneak up and go, da? What, what does it mean? This is so fascinating. It doesn't mean any of that. This is directly connected back to the Old Testament. Don't turn there. If you're taking notes, you can write the reference down because it's in Exodus 33 where Moses and God are talking. In fact, it's, it's fascinating. I was reading this morning again where Moses, the Bible says, every morning it would go and talk to God in person, person to person. And at one point, Moses, he's talking with God. And he's saying, God, I want to know, I want to know you. I want to see you. I want you to show me your glory, God. Now he's talking, he's not talking to somebody else. He's talking to God, the God, okay? And God says, okay, but I'm not, not going to allow you to see my face. But I'm going to show you my glory. And here's the phrase, I am going to pass by you. And when I do, I'm going to tuck you into the cleft of a rock and I'm going to cover you with my hand until I pass by you and you will not see my face, but you will see the backside of me because of my glory and my holiness. But I want to reveal myself to you. I want to pass by you. So when Mark, instructed by Peter, writes, Jesus meant to pass by them, he's not tiptoeing trying to get around them. He is intentionally saying, I want to show you who I am. I am God. Second thing. You notice when they all freak out, wig out, tripping out? Ghost! Ah! Jesus. Hey, settle down, take heart. And then he declares something. The, the text here in the English says, it is I. Now, we don't walking around, knocking on the door, knock, knock. Who is it? It is I. <laughs> the Greek, it's ego, a me. Fascinating. It means I am. What's that go back to? Old Testament. Who said my name? is I am. Well, God did. When God told Moses to go and take his people out of the land of Egypt, and Moses said, but who am I going to say sent me? What's your name? No one's going to believe this. And he is going to say, tell them, I am sent you. What's Jesus doing? 
Disciples, don't be afraid. Don't be utterly astounded. My name, Jesus is saying this. Jesus is saying, I am. I am God. Point of the message, Peter is trying to convince the audience, that's us right now, that Jesus is God. How do you receive that in your heart? Second point we're going to look at, and that is that Peter actually, it's interesting in every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, every one of them has a central theme that they are trying to convince their audience that Jesus is. In Matthew, Matthew's purpose for writing the entire Gospel is to convince his Jewish audience that Jesus is, anybody know? King. Jesus is king. Luke is writing his audience to convince everyone that Jesus is the son of man. He's God, man, his humanity. John is writing for the purpose to convince his audience that Jesus is the son of God. He's man, but he is God. Mark has also a very distinctive purpose. He's writing to convince his audience, which interestingly, at the time he's writing, Nero is slaughtering Christians. He's persecuting them. And he's writing to the believers, probably Gentile believers, not so much the Jewish audience that are in Rome at the time. And his whole purpose of convincing his audience is that Jesus is servant. He's a servant. But not just a servant. He is, this is fascinating. He's already said he's God, but this God is your servant. Not you were his servant. He is your servant. And we see that inductively as we look through the text. Let me point out some things. Here's one that's implicit, not explicit, but I'm gonna make the point. Notice in verse 45 and 50, there is the word immediately. Notice that? 40 times in the book of Mark, the word is used. 19 times it's associated with Jesus specifically and something he did or something he said. Interpreters, hermeneutical geniuses, as well as theologians, say that the word euthus, which is the word immediately, is, quote, servant language. Who goes and does something immediately when you tell them? Why a servant does. What's obedience really look like? We used to teach our kids. I don't know where I heard this, but we would say, if you're really obeying, you're doing it immediately, sweetly, and completely. Did I learn, does that word came from you guys? It's a good word. Yeah. Servant, slave language. Servant language immediately. Fascinating, but let's get even more strength to the argument. Did you notice in verse 45, Mark writes, again, Paul is telling his eyewitness account, the then story when he was there. Paul writes that after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, the word is made. In the Greek, it means force. He asserted his will upon them. He compelled them. He made them get into the boat. Now, just reading this text, you're like, well, okay, so he made them get into the boat. We have to speculate as to why or not. Because in John's account, John tells us exactly what's going on. 
At the finishing of feeding 20-some thousand people, everyone is amazed. As people start to murmur and say, could this be the guy where the Old Testament talks about a prophet that's going to come into the world and save the world? Could this be it? And the Bible says that Jesus discerned and perceived that the crowd and the fervor pitch of the crowd was beginning to contemplate and beginning to strategize how to, here's what John's text says, take Jesus by force and make him king. Which, if you've been to any kind of like revival school training or big campaign training and there's a crowd assembled and everything goes really well and people are just hanging out, you don't cut off the meeting and send everybody home. You keep it going. God's doing something. But Jesus knew that if they would actually take him now and if he was to be king now, it would short circuit what his main objective was was. It's possible that even the disciples got caught up in this fever pitch. Don't know, the text doesn't say. Maybe they did. And maybe that's why immediately Jesus said, you guys over here get in the boat, you're going that way. I want you out of here. And then Jesus dismisses the crowd. And I'm going to ask this question. Why didn't he want to be king right then? 20, 25,000 people in the Galilee region, that's a lot of people. There are only literally tens of thousands of people living in that area, not millions. That's enough for a large army. That's enough for a kingdom. And think about it. If Jesus had become king at that moment, he could heal everybody. He could make stuff out of more stuff. He could cast out any demons that come along. He, he could be an amazing king, except for the fact it wouldn't have been a kingdom that sinners could enter into for all of eternity. So what does Jesus do? He makes them get in the boat and he dismisses. He tells the crowds, go home. Go on. He departs from the crowd and then he goes up to the mountain to be alone to pray. Have you ever wondered what he was praying about? The word prayer means to petition, means to ask. Jesus, we've already seen he's God, but yet he's praying because he needs help. It's a wonderful text to contemplate what the author of Hebrews says, that Jesus was experienced in every way as we are with temptation, and yet he did not sin. Could it be, this is maybe implicit, not explicit, could it be that Jesus was actually being tempted, didn't sin, but the fervor crowd pitch, the hero, the high fives, yeah, Jesus, yes, maybe chanting, could that have been a potential struggle for Jesus? I will say this, only three times Mark mentions that Jesus got alone to pray, and the third time we have a record of, and that was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus actually prayed, Father, is it possible that you would take this cup of suffering from me so I don't have to bear it? Could you do that for me? Three times he prays, and he finally concludes, no, this is my mission. Father, I will do your will. Help me. One last thing to tie it all together. There's an apex verse in Mark. We'll get to it in a few weeks when we get there, but I'm going to jump ahead. Mark 10, 45. This is the, the, the uh, um, turnkey of the entire gospel. And this is where guys are arguing about who's greater, who's going to have more prominence, and Jesus says to them, I... God, God man, did not come to be served, but to serve. 
I came to be a servant. And then it goes and it tells us how. It's not like I'm going to like wash your um, wagons and clean your feet and get food. And No, I'm going to serve you by paying a ransom price for your sins. I am going to die. I'm going to give my life because that's the ransom payment for the sin and the weight of those who have entered into this world. That's the main point. That's the main message. Which brings us to this. Jesus is so much more than a great referral to meet your temporal needs. In the business world, one of the things that we do is service our community in a different way. And it's constantly about getting good referrals. And people are always, you know, whether it's nextdoor.com or HomeWise or HomeAdvisor, we're all about getting online. Hey, does anybody have a good referral for this? Do they do a really good job? Are they experienced? Do they smell good? Do they look nice? Are they kind? Are they pol- I need a good referral. to. D- Sometimes I think that if we're not careful, we can take the power of Jesus and his miracles and reduce them to just another great referral for our temporal needs. That's not the point. Yeah, Jesus is an amazing referral. He'll do it better than anybody. He's got more power than you ever thought of. But his mission objective is to surrender his life at a cross. Because our real need is not to just get temporal, physical healing now. Our real need is not to be successful so that we can enjoy a retirement now. It's not necessarily that whatever we're praying for, that Jesus would do that right now so that he ends up serving us so it's about us. No, Jesus' prime objective is to deliver us. It's to give us opportunity and invitation for a day when there will be no need for healings. There will be no need for more money in the bank account, for any kind of oppression or darkness or black magic or demonic powers to be exercised out of someone. Everything will be made right, but the way in is the way of the cross. So I finish by asking, or by saying it this way, miraculous Astonishment is not enough. A hard heart can be astonished, can be amazed, but never believe. So I'm wondering this morning, if you're here, maybe you're a guest, maybe you're a long-time professing Christian, and you love the idea about Jesus and all of his power, but may I just kindly invite you this morning as we close this service to invite you to contemplate with me the power of the cross and thank our servant suffering Savior for not prematurely becoming king before he opened the door to the kingdom of heaven for us. We're going to sing what probably for most of you may be a new song. It's popularized by the Gettys, if you know Keith and Kristen Getty or Stuart Townend. It's kind of a hymn. Um, it's slow, it's not real loud, but it's, it's meditative, it's contemplative. And before we sing this song, the way we're going to do it, uh, Kim is going to actually kind of teach us, sing through the first two stanzas, and then I'll stand, you can stand with me, and we're going to ask that all of us, as you're learning this, sing and think through the lyrics, the text, the truth of stanza three and four, and then we'll be dismissed. Before we sing, the words of my friend... I've read from him before. 
I want to read again. Think about this. A gruesome death like the one that Christ endured for me would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to appease a holy God. Consequently, whenever I consider the necessity and manner of his death, along with the love and selflessness behind it, I am laid bare and utterly exposed for the sinner I am. Such an awareness of my sinfulness does not drag me down, but actually serves to lift me up by magnifying my appreciation of God's forgiving grace in my life. And the more I appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness of my sins, the more I love him and delight to show him love through heartfelt expressions of worship. I wonder what it would look like if all of us, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, to come and contemplate our suffering servant as he paid the ransom price for our sins and just simply worship him. Place your faith in him. Receive his gift. Kim, would you lead us?